13. And uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 12 once again. We're going to continue on where we left off this morning. And uh, beginning in verse 20 uh, <clears throat> through verse 24. John chapter 12, verse 20 through 24. It says there, and there were in a certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came before to Philip, which was at Bethsaida of Galilee, and desiring him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hours come. The Son of Man shall be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Uh, there's a historic church in Los Angeles, uh, Church of the Open Door, downtown Los Angeles, and that's a church where J. Vernon McGee pastored for 21 years, I believe. J. Vernon McGee, an old radio preacher, and uh, uh, was... Uh, there And I heard if you stood behind the pulpit there, looked out over this massive auditorium uh, consisting of uh, a large first floor and then a, a balcony and even a second balcony, I understand. But And I've never been there. I've just been told that it, was, it gave you a feeling of importance just to stand there and look out over a large crowd. And you can see there would be uh, large crowds under Brother McGee's uh, uh, ministry at one time. Uh, and by the way, uh, he has a lot of good things to say on his radio program and in his, in his Through the Bible books. I would say, and like many, many uh, preachers and book writers, I don't agree 100% with everything he says, okay? So uh, I'm not giving a wholehearted endorsement, but he does have a lot of good things to, to say. But, uh, uh, but as far as this auditorium there, uh, you might think, well, you're... Is you, if you got an opportunity to preach there, that be a uh, your ego might begin to inflate, and then you quickly come down to earth when you look down at a little plaque fixed on the pulpit right there, and it says these words, "Sir, we would see Jesus." And I think that's that's an important for any preacher to think about as uh, he gets up to preach. Uh, people need to see Jesus; they don't need to see a preacher. Uh, I'm just a, a mouthpiece giving the word of God, but they need to see Jesus. And, and that probably would be a good thing to be on many pulpits today. But uh, uh, in other words, uh, they didn't come to see, uh, you know, the preacher. Uh, we don't want to be impressed with your brilliance or your eloquence. We want to see Jesus. Uh, I think that's what these Greeks were interested in, too. They didn't come to see the disciples. They wanted to see Jesus. And those were appropriate words uh, for any preacher to remember and for every Christian to keep in mind as they talk to others about Christ as well. Uh, in 1 John 3, verse 2, the apostle tells us, But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Seeing Jesus will transform us. And so even though now we see through a glass darkly, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, our aim should be to see more and more 
of the Lord Jesus. And as we grow to see more of His glory now, it progressively changes us into His image. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so the question is this afternoon, how do we see Jesus and His glory now? Uh, then what a difference uh, will seeing Jesus and His glory make in our lives. Uh, the question is answered here in John chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. Now that's what we're going to look at next week, the Lord willing. But this week we want to focus on how we see Jesus and His glory now. Uh, we see it in these verses that I just read moments ago, to see Jesus and His glory, we need to look to the cross. Jesus is saying, the hour has come. And the Son of Man should be glorified. In response to the Greeks' request to see Jesus, he announces that this, his time has come. The hour of the cross. Uh, Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies so that it bears much fruit. And then Jesus applies this to us in later verses here. His followers also uh, lose their lives even as Jesus would lose his with there are great rewards for those who do. Now, that's an interesting text here uh, for several reasons. Number one, it seems a bit unexpected to find these Greeks in Jerusalem for this feast, for a Jewish feast, that is. Probably Gentiles who were proselytes to Judaism. It's also rather odd that John would tell us about their request to see Jesus, but then they seem to pass off the scene and, and we really never learn whether their request was even granted or what came of it. But my guess is that Jesus granted their request, but they aren't, we aren't told. John just uses their request to kind of turn the corner for us to the cross. Uh, Philip seems rather confused by this request, and so he goes over and talks to Andrew. Uh, then the two of them come to Jesus with the request. And it's not obvious on the surface, but Jesus' reply kind of relates to the Greeks' desire to see him. It's clear, though, that Jesus sees the request as a turning point in his ministry. And again, up till now, there's been a repeated theme in, in the Gospel of John that Jesus' hour or time had not yet come. It goes back to chapter 2 when uh, his mother... Uh, came to him in Cana and informed him that they had run out of wine. He replied that his hour had not yet come. Uh, when his brothers, who were not yet believing in him, advised him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles and make himself known, Jesus replied that his time was not yet come. Uh, later at that feast, when hostile Jews tried to seize him, they were unable to lay a hand upon him because his hour had not come. And when Jesus taught openly in the temple... Again, his enemies could not seize him because his hour had not yet come. But now, in response to the request of these Greeks, the request to see him, he announces in verse 23, the hour is come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, why does he uh, announce that at this point? Uh, what is the significance of these Greeks and their desire to see Jesus? I don't think it's just, you know, uh, a mistake or a, just a, 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 an insignificant reason for this, even though we don't hear from them or about them anymore. But what significance of these Greeks and their desire? Uh, 
the answer is that these Greeks kind of, again, signal this turning point in which the Jewish people are going to reject Jesus as their Savior, and the gospel would now go out to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. Salvation would be now proclaimed to the whole world. Uh, that's uh, the worldwide scope of the gospel is being telegraphed here. For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, uh, it didn't say God so loved the Jews. He said, for God so loved the world. And this is kind of a, a, a very important part in uh, declaring that if the Jews are going to reject Jesus, the, uh, the gospel message is going to go out to the, the Gentiles as well. Uh, we saw in John chapter 4, verse 42, when the Samaritan people told the people who had met Jesus by the well, they said, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The gospel came to the Jews first, but now they have rejected it, and the message is going to go out to the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean the Jews uh, can't get saved, but they can, but it's going to include everyone. John makes a point, and it's a very subtle and skillful point, uh, but he contrasts the Pharisees with the Greeks. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Israel. They should have accepted Jesus as, his, as their Messiah, as their Savior, but instead they reject him, they seek to kill him. But in contrast, the Greeks are seeking him. John wants us to see that the Jews' rejection of Jesus did not upset or thwart the plan of salvation. I didn't uh, 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 make it uh, of none effect or uh, make it uh, something that couldn't happen. It actually is something that meant it was good news for the world. And also John uses irony again to report the frustrating words of the Pharisees as they saw the crowd shouting, Hosanna, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the uh, the donkey's colt, and, and they said, Perceive ye how ye prevail, nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. And the irony is that, yes, in fact, the world is going after Jesus. He is the Savior not only of the Jews, but of all people who would seek him. Now, there are really just two important truths that we want to get this afternoon uh, about these verses. Number one is God's ultimate aim in history. God's ultimate aim in history. Now look again at verse 23. Jesus says in verse 23, The hour is come that the Son of Man shall be glorified. And the words Son of Man, the phrase there, was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It has uh, overtones, uh, indicates his deity, but it also has undertones as uh, indicating his humanity. It was a way of alluding to and yet veiling his Messiahship for his con the concept of Messiah differed markedly from the commonly held view. And the term Messiah is always associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or the salvation he came to bring. 
Now, in the last chapter, in Jesus looking ahead to raising Lazarus from the dead, he said in John chapter 11 and verse 4, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, that simply means that to glorify the Son is equivalent to glorifying God which was Jesus' aim. That was his goal. That was his mission in all that he did. All As we have seen already uh, in our study, is that God's glory is very, very important. It's essential. Uh, his glory is displayed in all of his attributes and his works. And since God's ultimate aim is to glorify himself through his Son, then our chief aim, our chief goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now back in John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, Jesus made a statement that would be blasphemous on the lips of anyone else who was not equal to God. If anyone else said this, it would be a blasphemous statement. But Jesus said it, and He said, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment under the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. And then later on in his prayer, and before going uh, out to Gethsemane, Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 1, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And he added in verse 5, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, Paul also made this uh, same point over and over. After mentioning how Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the death of the cross, you know, in Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verses 9 through 11, uh, or in earlier verses there, but in verses 9 and 11 through 11, he said, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We go over to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, and we see there that Paul said that God's purpose is kind of summing up all things in Christ. Uh, in Colossians 1.18, Paul said that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. In Revelation chapter 1.22 and 23, John describing the new Jerusalem said, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So, throughout eternity, we're going to live in the light of the glory of God. We're going to live in the glory of God and His Son, the Lamb who was slain for us. Again, very familiar verse, but Paul makes an application of this in 1 Corinthians 10.31, where it says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Sometimes we know these verses uh, and we know them so well and we take them for granted. But to, uh, to state that negatively, if something doesn't glorify God, if something doesn't make him look good or as he truly is, then don't do it. Right? 
Don't do it. Now, the, began, uh, the battle begins on the thought level. Do your thoughts glorify God? Anybody thinking this afternoon? You know, we got any thoughts? <laughs> Do your thoughts glorify God? Uh, most of you uh, can think through the day. You're thinking about things as you're working, as you're going around about your household duties, your work duties, wherever you're at. You're thinking. Do those thoughts glorify God? That's where it begins. Do your attitudes glorify the Savior? By the way, grumbling does not glorify God. All right? Whining does not glorify God. But thankfulness does. Thankfulness glorifies God. Now, it battle starts on the thought level, but extends to your words. Does what you say to your spouse or to your children, does it glorify God? Does what you say about another person behind their back glorify God? Paul says that we shouldn't use rotten speech that tears someone else down, but only words that edify and give grace. And then from your thought level to your words, it flows out to your behavior. Do your actions this week glorify God? Did your actions make God look good so that others would be drawn to the Savior? And since God's aim in history is to glorify His Son, our aim, our goal, our desire, our focus every day should be to glorify the Lord and the Savior. So God's ultimate aim in history. Secondly, the cross, the other thought here is the cross reveals God's glory. Now, when Jesus said here in verse 23, the hours come and the Son of Man should be glorified, he's referring to the cross. The same is true when he prayed in John 17, 1, Father, the hours come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. And Jesus glorified the Father, and the Father glorified Jesus through the cross. How is that? How did he do that? Well, three ways. There could be many more. Uh, we'll just look at three this afternoon. But first of all, God is glorified by coming to Christ alone for salvation. Jesus was saying, in effect, these Greeks cannot see me. They, the only way by which they can see me and know me and apprehend me is that through the hour that is now come, and that is by the way of the cross. So Jesus, as he goes on, and you say, what, what, what does verse 24 have to do this? Well, Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies, produces much fruit. He was speaking of himself. himself uh, he himself was the grain that had to die and be multiplied to suffer death through the unbelief of the Jews and to be multiplied in the faith of many nations. A grain of wheat of itself... You know, a grain of wheat's very small. And you just set a grain of wheat on the shelf and leave it there, it's not going to do anything. It's just going to sit there. But if it falls into the ground and the outer shell dies, the life inside is released and produces a plant that contains many grains of wheat. 
And through the cross, the gospel was open to all people. Now, Jesus is the Savior for the Jews first, but also for the Gentiles, as Paul indicates to us in Romans chapter 1. But whether Jew or Gentile, all must come through Jesus and his substitutionary death alone. There are not many ways to God. Jesus is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John fourteen six. Peter echoed this when he proclaimed to the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is, there any, uh, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name, un, given, un, none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So when the Greeks approach Philip here at the feast, now he's a little hesitant, I believe, to bring them to Jesus. Uh, We don't know, by the way, why they went to Philip. I'm not sure why they went to Philip. Perhaps it was because his name was Greek, had a Greek origin. Or maybe, as John reminds us in verse 21, he was from Bethsaida of Galilee, which was near some of the Gentile provinces. Before Philip went to Jesus with his request, though he confers with Andrew, and they together go to Jesus. Probably Philip's hesitation stems from Jesus' earlier instructions to the twelve before he sent them out on a preaching tour. And as we read in Matthew 10, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Maybe Philip was thinking about that. Jesus' mission, in line with the Abrahamic covenant to bless all nations through his descendants, was first to offer himself to the Jews as their Messiah. And then he opens the door of salvation to the Gentiles only after Israel rejects him. And so the gospel goes out to the nations through those who, through faith, are Abraham's true spiritual children. Now in the Great Commission... Just before he ascended, Jesus very plainly commands in Matthew 28, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Luke reports that Jesus was telling his disciples that repentance for forgiveness would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. In Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7, John sees a great multitude in heaven. From every tribe, tongue, people, and nation whom Jesus would purchase with his blood. So the cross reveals Jesus' glory by having all people come to him and him alone for salvation. There is no other salvation outside of faith in Jesus' death for our sins. So the cross reveals God's glory by uh, this very important point. Secondly, The cross reveals God's glory, and God is glorified by Christ by nullifying the good work or the boastful works of sinners. Now that's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He shows how God sets aside the so called wisdom of this world 
and how they replace it or how it's replaced with Christ crucified. Paul replaces the wisdom of this world with Christ crucified. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he goes on to show that God did not choose the Corinthians for salvation because of their wisdom or their earthly status so that no one can boast, hey, look what I did. Look what I know. I came to Christ because of what I did, my wisdom. No, no one can say that. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, But of him are ye in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Paul also had a similar argument in Galatians. He refutes the proud claims of the Judaizers who said that in addition to faith in Christ, people would have to keep the Jewish law especially the right of circumcision. But if sinners can commend themselves to God on the basis of anything they can do, then they have grounds for boasting in their good works. Paul concludes in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross, or except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the Lord is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The cross means that Jesus did everything necessary for salvation. He paid in full the debt that we owe. He satisfied God's righteous judgment against our sins. There is nothing that we can do to qualify for heaven. All we can do is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And that's nothing we can boast in. He gets all the glory for our salvation, and we get none. And that's a practical point of doctrine. God gets the glory for our salvation. God is glorified by Christ by coming to Christ, or God is glorified by Christ by coming to Christ alone, by nullifying the boastful works of sinners, and then thirdly, by being. God's perfect love and justice. Now the cross showed God's love not just for the Jews, but for the world. We've already established that in John 3.16. It reveals God's great love for us. It's just like His great love, as we sang moments ago. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. John declares it in 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus didn't love us because we were worthy. He loved us in spite of our rebellion. As Charles Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now that word propitiation points to another aspect of God's glory as seen in the cross, His perfect justice. God didn't love us so much that He he just said, oh, well, I'll overlook your sins because I love you so much, I'm just going to overlook what you've done. 
If he had done that, he wouldn't be just and righteous. A judge who dismisses murderers and rapists with no penalty would not be a just judge. The requirement of the law must be upheld. So God's gracious solution was to send his son as the propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 says Jesus had to share our human nature that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So at the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God on behalf of all who, whom the Father gave to him. Now the word propitiation... Thus, the use of the concept of propitiation witnesses to two great realities. The one, the reality and the seriousness of divine reaction against sin. And the other, the reality and the greatness of the divine love, which provided the gift which would avert the wrath from men. The cross shows Jesus' glory by being the supreme revelation of God's perfect love and justice. And God invites all sinners to come to him and to be saved. His ultimate aim in history is to glorify the Son. The cross reveals God's glory in Christ by having all people come to him alone for salvation, by nullifying the boastful works of sinners, by displaying God's perfect love and justice. He did not shed his blood in vain, hoping that some might be saved. He shed his blood to save all who would come to him. No, to see Jesus and his glory, you don't have to ask for some mystical vision. Rather, look to the cross. The cross reveals Jesus' glory. Ask God to open your eyes to the glory of Christ and him crucified. Meditate on it. It'll humble you. It'll humble your pride because, you know, that's the biggest thing that you have going against you is your pride. It'll stir your heart with love and worship for the Savior who gave himself for you because you're a sinful rebel. It will give you compassion and hope even for the lost who can be saved by looking in faith to Jesus as a substitute for their sins. And I trust as we have opportunity to continue on here, we'll see Jesus' glory in the cross will transform us so that others can see Jesus through us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.